0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry about her new book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. And after that discussion, I also speak with Dr. Aubrey Hendricks about the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's speech in opposition To the war in Vietnam that's coming up on the Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. Slavery remains the dark stain on the American narrative, reflecting the incongruence between what was committed on paper and what was practiced in reality. For as much as slavery has been discussed, rarely has it been realized from the perspective of enslaved Americans. But University of Texas professor Dinah Ramey Berry does exactly that in her new book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. This is a well-researched and gripping book that uses the voice of enslaved Americans to tell an unflattering side of the American experiment. Professor Diney e. Ramsey Berry, welcome to the book Morality. You. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I'd like to begin by you uh, just, uh, if you would, read a passage from this very powerful book, uh, The Price for there, a Pound of Flesh.
1: Sure. I'm going to read a chapter from the early chapter when I'm talking about enslaved children and their understanding of themselves as being treated as a commodity. This is from um, Chapter 3. The pubescent years were terrifying. Not only were their bodies changing, but this was also a time when enslaved children experienced the separation they had feared all their lives. Daughters and sons were taken from their parents. As the external value of their bodies increased, market scenes from their childhood now made sense and haunted them for the rest of their lives. At this stage in their maturation, they knew full well that others claimed ownership of them, and sexual assault came at any age. However, their parents, if present, as well as other kin, reminded them of a value that enslavers and traders could not commodify the spiritual value of their immortal selves. Soul values, my term for such valuation, often escaped calculation and developed during these years. Enriched through an inner spiritual centering that facilitated survival, soul values were reinforced by loved ones. Sometimes this internal value appeared as a spirit, a voice, a vision, a premonition, a sermon, an ancestor, a god. It came in public and private settings and was occasionally described as a personal message from a higher being, a heaviness in the core of their bodies. My soul began singing, one enslaved person recalled, and I was told that I was one of the elected children. This telling, this uplifting, this singing of a fearful thrill of things unknown but longed for still made the enslaved feel free during captivity. Freedom of the soul matured in puberty. And I'll stop there.
0: Why did you select that passage?
1: I selected that because one of the main, hopefully, takeaways of this work is that although enslaved people were treated as property um, and they were traded and sold like the same way we trade goods today or buy and sell cars, there was some piece of them internally that they held on to that was their dignity, that was their humanity, that others could not buy and sell and could not, could not trade, and I call this their soul values. And I find that when we look at the literature that's been written on enslaved people and valuation, um, most of this work has been done by economic historians, but when we look at how enslaved people were treated as commodities, we often ignore how they responded, how they reacted, and how they, how they sort of confronted this notion of being treated as a product and a person. And I really wanted readers to know how they survived and what they held on to. And I think the sole value is, is, is it for me. It was it for me, and it was a term that I came up with to try to describe this aspect of them that could not be commodified.
0: Well, on that note, um, talk to me, if you will, about the relationship, um, between price and value.
2: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: So I'm very technical and with in the book about when I use the word price. I'm using the term price when I have a market value, a market value that reflected something that somebody paid for that enslaved person. Value, though, can be appraised values. Um, they could also be internal values, like the, the, the values you, that you hold for yourselves, your morals your, and your values. Um, but here, I always use whenever I have the word, I'm actually using the word value much more than use price because the records that I use here, only maybe 10% of them were actual market prices. So a lot of what I have in the manuscript are appraisals or projected values that people projected on a person Thinking about how much they would be worth over the course of their lifetime at a particular moment.
0: Excuse me, uh, Dr. Berry, but talk if you would uh, about that appraisal process. Sure. Because there's a lot. There's a lot to what you just said there.
1: Yeah. Well, I think what most um, the average person may not know that enslaved people were appraised at every stage of their lives. Like before they were born, there were there were assessments of. The future, um, the future productivity, reproductive uh, productivity of enslaved females. So enslavers would look at a woman and try to determine whether or not she would have healthy children. And they would, they would appraise a value on her given what they thought she would get, you know, given whether or not the children that she would give birth to would be healthy. Um, and so, but once people are born, they're appraised every single year. And so this was often done in whether it was mostly on large. We have these records that survive from large plantations predominantly. But even some of the small farms, you know, with ten or fewer enslaved people on them, they had to appraise them for tax purposes. And so they have these what we call state inventories, and they would list the name, the age, um, and the value. And that value was an appraisal at that moment, at that time, on what they projected that enslaved person would be worth over the course of their lifetime. And so what I found was that number increased as they aged and sort of went down um, after their work capacity wasn't going to be the same as, you know, someone that was in their prime physical capacity. So um, appraisals were physical, where enslaved people were touched. They were searched. Sometimes they were stripped. They were made to march up and down, run in place, squat you know, um, open their mouths. One um, enslaved woman described it as having every cavity of her body that could be viewed or looked into was looked into. Um, Sometimes they were provided with screens and curtains for privacy, and other times this was done in public on an auction block or in the privacy of someone's home if it was a private sale. Um, They were prepared for the market. Enslaved people were often sort of greased up, um, literally they would make their skin, put some oil on their skin. Sometimes they would feed them very well a few days before they were sold to plump them up for sale, and um, they would try to make sure they look tidy and clean and, and healthier, sometimes healthier than they actually were.
0: Um, historically, there has not, in my view, been much emphasis um, on hearing the voice of enslaved uh, Americans, say for the uh, Works Project Administration's slave mm-hmm. narratives between um, what thirty six and thirty eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but explain the the, the 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 process that you used to unearth the voice of voices that, in my view, hold a very unique perspective of the American experiment that is too often ignored.
1: Okay, well, I looked. Um, that was one of my main focal points. I was trying to find a way. To tell the story of enslaved people as human beings, which we all know they were, <laughs> and also as products, and I wanted their voices to be central. So I tried to find ways where they would teach me about their experience. And um, if I could read a little, another little section. By
0: all means, please do. Okay,
1: I want to read um, the story of Ponte. This is just an. Um, this came from like I think a newspaper. Um, well, I'm not sure what, what this particular source was. I have to look at the footnotes. But um, I had um, slave narratives, like you mentioned, the WPA narratives, which were conducted in the 1930s. So those are interviews of people that were most likely in their 80s. So they were very young. So the recollections may have been stories that they were told, or um, memories from their parents, and some things that they had witnessed firsthand. So some scholars question that particular source. There were also a number of enslaved narratives that were, that were taken during slavery um, that were recorded by newspapers, recorded by anti-slavery societies, and they were sometimes published. And so I, I looked at every single narrative that I could get my hands on, um, and some of them started as early as 1825. We also have another set of narratives from people that ran away and escaped to Canada, um, and these were published primary records that scholars, historians will be familiar with them, but a larger audience may not. So here's a story of an elderly enslaved man named Ponto. Sometime in the mid-1830s, an enslaved man named Ponto and more more than 100 other enslaved people were placed on the auction block in Richmond, Virginia. Come here, Ponto, stand up here, and tell the gentleman what you can do, shouted the auctioneer. Ponto mumbled something under his breath. To the dismay, of, the dismay of the auctioneer, but he continued, "Gentlemen, what will you have from what will you what will you give me for Ponto, a good field hand, thirty-two years of age?" And, and at this point, Ponto interrupted him and yelled out, "Gentlemen, I is a rising 40. Disturbed, the auctioneer remarked, "He is described in the bill of sale, gentlemen, as thirty-two years of old age, which I presume is correct." To this, Ponto looked at the audience and said, Why, gentlemen, I've lived here with Mr. Gordon arising 21 years, and when he bought me, I was a heap better than I is now. The auctioner, now visibly irritated, responded, Well, gentlemen, you see this N-word before you. He is described as being 32 years of age. He says he is 40. It is for you to judge which of the two is correct. In an effort to move forward with the bidding process, he said that Ponto was a first-rate plantation hand, strong and able bodied But Ponto interrupted him again, addressing the crowd, "'Gentlemen, I am not able bodied for in the first place I is troubled with sickness, and in the next place I've got a wren on my right shoulder as big as an Irish potato.'" The last remark silenced the bidders, and the auctioneer quickly rushed Ponto off the stand, saying, "'Gentlemen, you see this fellow does not want to be sold.'" However, I shall find a master for him. We have no way of knowing whether he found a master for Ponto, and we cannot confirm his age because enslaved people had unusual birth certificates. Ponto's uh, interference with his sale may have been more common than we realize. And I'll stop there. And I think that's just one example of a negotiation that Walter Johnson writes about. He wrote about this in a book called Soul by Soul that was published in the late 90s where we talk, we, he spoke about enslaved people interrupting their sales, trying to negotiate. And I tried to capture moments like that. So every chapter that I wrote began with an auction scene of an enslaved person at a particular age. But I wanted the readers to understand that enslaved people weren't just silently accepting the institution. They were fighting back, and they fought back in very unique ways.
0: If you're just joining us, uh, we're speaking with Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry, author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. Uh, and Dr. Berry, what prompted the title of your book?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I have a big thing with titles. And I, um, the title comes from a story at the beginning of the book about an enslaved man. And I found this story, I think while I was a graduate student, so almost 20 years ago, and I knew that I wanted to use that title, The Price for the Pound of Flesh. It's also um, from a Shakespearean. um, It's from Shakespeare as well, from The Merchant of Venice. But this was a story of an enslaved man who was um, incarcerated for running away. And he was in prison, and he was in there for several weeks, and there were other enslaved people that were being brought in while he was there, and they kind of had an agreement amongst each other to not give out any information about who they were owned by where they were from, you know, give fake names because they didn't want to be captured and they didn't want to be taken back to their previous owners. And so while this gentleman was in um, in prison, there was another enslaved man that came in there and he was sick and he was emaciated and he, was, he looked like he was near death. And this Jordan Banks is the person that's telling the story. And Jordan says, you know, um, that this gentleman, you know, basically allowed – uh, he started trusting one of the medical doctors that was coming in to tend to him. And Jordan felt like that was a mistake, that this prisoner should not have told him anything. He trusted him. And then the next thing you know, a couple of days later, the medical doctor told um, who his owner was, and the owner came to purchase, come to, to claim his property. And the medical doctor offered to purchase the guy um, because he wasn't really worth much at this point because he was near death. And the owner said, no, you can't have him. You know, I'm going to take him back with me to the plantation and make an example out of him. And the doctor said, well, I'm, he's not going to make it back. He's going to die. And Jordan is witnessing this whole scene. And Jordan says that it didn't matter dead or alive that he was going to take him because he wanted his price for his pound of flesh. Mm. And so that's, that's where I came from. That This is an enslaved man referencing, you know, something that comes from a Shakespearean play. Um, and that he, and it also shows that they understood the values of their bodies and that sometimes their bodies were made as, as an example.
0: Um, as a research historian,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, how do you
1: negotiate the use of the oral tradition in your work? Well, for me, I've always, because I do African American history, um, African and African American history relies upon oral tradition, particularly African history, um, and so f- I, it's hard for me because the, everybody that I write about in the time period that I write are deceased, um, but I do, I do use sources that were based on oral testimony. Um, there's an excellent book that I use throughout this, this manuscript, um, and that is William Still was an abolitionist who collected stories of runaway enslaved people once they made it to Philadelphia and he's got a book called The Underground Railroad, and he just has everybody sort of tell their story, and he, he collected all these essays. So a lot of the, the stories that I came to in this book were from William Still's oral testimony, and some of those testimonies are from enslaved people like Harriet Tubman and others who came through there at some point, point. and you'll find other narratives of these same individuals in other places, um, but I often use oral testimony um, because it's a very big part of African tradition, and and it's also a, an anthropological and sociological methodology that scholars have to employ.
0: You know, as you were giving that answer, I was thinking back. Um, Frederick Douglass's his his first biography, autobiography. You know, and he talked about how people questioned um, whether or not he really was a slave, like mm-hmm. when he would give those speeches. And so I'm wondering, in a a, 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 a similar vein, have you encountered where people might question the authenticity of a source because it was in the oral tradition and not something that the academy normally embraces?
1: That happens all the time, but to make it even more to sort of explain the kind of questioning I've had, not just about the oral tradition, but they'll question this notion of bias of sources, right? Mm -hmm. And I teach my students that, Every source that we use is biased. And why do we privilege, and we have in the past, privileged the records of plantation owners as being, you know, the last word and rarely questioning those? We write books about slavery from plantation records. And so I'm suggesting that we can write books about slavery and also use the voice of the enslaved because they have their own perspective on this history as well.
0: Now, I see your work. As a successful quest uh, to 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 provide and offer a three-dimensional perspective to a group of Americans that have been largely portrayed as one-dimensional in the historical narrative. I don't how do how do you see that?
1: I appreciate that. No, I do. Um, What I what I one of the one of the other takeaways that I hope is that um, we won't we'll think about enslaved people not as objects because oftentimes. Um, people write about the enslaved as an object. You know, they're, they're already objectified with this institution of slavery. But I want to look at them as, as people um, and people who had feelings and thoughts and emotions and opinions about their experience with enslavement. And I think that's the one piece that's been there but twinkling in. And I think that um, the way that the direction of the historiography, as we call it, which is the way historians write history, the direction of the historiography is to um, incorporate more enslaved voices and to think about these, these, this history from their perspective. And you can't—you can no longer argue that the sources aren't there, because the sources are there. It's just a matter of whether or not we're asking specific questions or kinds of questions, and if we're open enough to think about a newspaper article that might be telling about um, an auction scene. And you might kind have of overlooked the fact that there is direct, quote, directly quoted material from enslaved people within, buried in this article. And so a lot of what I pulled was places where I could say, where are enslaved people telling us and teaching us about their experience with enslavement? And I would like to l- use that in combination with plantation records and, and ledger books and bank records and all kinds of other, you know, state and government um, sources that I use in this manuscript.
0: Now there are two books that came to my mind for two different reasons and not not a juxtaposition of two books but just two thoughts that you put out put me made me think about two books I'm, and I'm going to I'm going to raise them with you and then have you comment. Uh, mm-hmm. the first one uh, uh strangely enough was uh nehisi Coates uh Between the World and Me in this context. The mm-hmm. Coates metaphorically uh, and sometimes literally uses the body uh, as representation of the African-American experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, you've demonstrated that, oh, that the only value of the of enslaved Americans within the dominant culture was the body, it, mm-hmm. even into death. Uh, yeah. if, if you agree with that, could you say more about that? If I?
1: Yes. Um, because I found that even when we look at the legal record, um, We look at the plantation records, the written records that survive from slavery. Um, The predominant concern among enslavers and traders was the value of the body. And that's why I use that phrase. Um, And I'll talk about the value of enslaved bodies because it's the body. It's not necessarily the person that they're valuing. Um, And and I'm not trying to separate the two, but I just think that the personhood is often ignored. Um, So the value of the body was extremely important As I mentioned before, they were born throughout each stage of their lives, and then even upon death and beyond. And what I mean by that is even their deceased bodies were sold, their cadavers were sold to medical schools for anatomical research. So even after an enslaved person died, and not all planters participate in this. We don't have the figures on this yet. It's it's still too early to determine. But some enslaved um, owners sold the bodies into an illegal trade the domestic cadaver trade, and the bodies were then um, distributed to medical schools, and so that's all body, 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 right? What about um, for me when you think about the person and the personhood of enslaved people who who happen to the site they they live in that body, right? The site of that body that is that is that is a commodity from an external perspective. Um, that body and that person that lives in that body has. Um, a different sense of themselves than those that use their bodies, and I tried to think about ways to describe that and teach that and tell that. Um, the hardest thing for me was writing this last chapter on this domestic cadaver trade because it was. I realized at that point that that the, the commodification of the enslaved body extended beyond their lives, and a lot of enslaved people looked forward to life. After death, they look forward to the moment where they could go home to glory. For those that were religious, they look forward to having a final resting place, or in their minds, being reunited with um, the spirits of their of their ancestors. Um, And so, there's an understanding. And I I have this question when people ask me, like, "Well, do they believe in a separation of the body and the spirit? And if they knew anything about the fact that their bodies were commodified after they died?" I'm sure some of them probably had to conceive of a separation because I know that they didn't want to accept the commodification during their lives, and I certainly couldn't imagine them being okay with it after they died.
0: Now, the second book mm-hmm. uh, is uh, Bois The Soul of Black Folk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you well know, he talks about the, the double consciousness. Mm-hmm. And... Your work suggests this is the origin of the double consciousness, and now also as a as a a, a professor, uh, you know, with students, especially your students of color, do you still see this double consciousness pervasive that that may have started in slavery that's still uh, a part of of uh, the African American culture today?
1: Yes, I do. Um, and I also think of, and I write about Du Bois in here, and I was very much influenced by Du Bois, um, the double consciousness in particular. Um, but I also think about Dunmar, Dunbar, you know, We mm-hmm. Wear the Mask. Um, his poem about wearing the mask, that tells, you know, I, I don't have it memorized, but um, where there's a sort of, for students of color, flipping back in between, having to, to function in a certain world, but then also living in another world. And I think that Du Bois really describes that, in the souls of black folk, and I think enslaved people absolutely live this way, and I think that they they were the living manifestation of Du Bois's souls of black folks before he even wrote it.
0: Now, um, because you are uh, a research scholar mm-hmm. um, on nineteenth-century American history, and slavery, and Southern heritage, and so forth, I, I, I would I would imagine. I'm guessing that you had to have something during your research
1: that surprised you. What was it? So, um, yes, the the Chapter 6 surprised me. The fact that bodies were, that even when an enslaved person, if their owners allowed them to have a funeral and to celebrate the homegoing or to mourn the loss of a loved one, Um, that sometimes even when their bodies were put in graves, sometimes they were exhumed, literally, the next day, the next night, and then put into another traffic that often followed the same routes as the domestic traffic and enslaved people when they were traded into slavery. And I think that surprised me the most, and I probably could have gone on for another three or four more years of research I, I just hit the top of the surface with this. I tell everybody that this is an area that I think is wide open for more scholarship and to understanding what happens to enslaved bodies when they died.
0: Professor Dinah Ramey Berry, author, uh, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, thank you for being on the public morality today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Welcome back. On April the 4th, 1967, exactly one year before he was assassinated in Memphis, Martin Luther King Jr. embarked on his most courageous and controversial odyssey. King addressed the crowd at the famed Riverside Church in New York City to publicly state his opposition to the war in Vietnam. With the benefit of a half century of hindsight, King's actions may not look as bold today as they were in reality. Joining us 50 years later to place King's words into perspective is Dr. Aubrey Hendricks. Dr. Hendrix is a professor, scholar, and author of several books, including The Universe Bends Toward Justice, Radical Reflections on the Bible, the Church, and the Body Politic. Dr. Aubrey Hendricks, welcome to The Public Morality. It's uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Let's begin by having you put Martin Luther King's um, speech in opposition to the war in Vietnam in context with some of his more more discussed work, at least in the public discourse. We 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 talk about the keynote address of the March on Washington. We talk about uh, the letter from Birmingham Jail. Where do you rank this uh, speech? Well, um,
3: this is his his most momentous speech. Pardon me. The closest he comes, I think, to uh, really letting the public know just how radical he really was, and uh, it was a speech that led to his death. So I think it was. Uh, so it's obviously the most consequential of his uh, of his public career. And I say led to his death because um, he challenged the uh, what did Eisenhower called the,
0: uh, Militar- the of- Militar- military military
3: discipline. Yeah. And uh, you can't do that. You get away with it. You know, and and when he talked about a poor people's campaign, um, coalescing so many people for, from all around the country, uh, that would have given him a, a perfect platform uh, to not only de- denounce uh, the uh, wealth inequality, but also to de- denounce the Vietnam War. And the captains of industry uh, could not allow that to happen.
0: Well, you know, you, you, you just touched on poverty then, so... Uh, for King, the cause of civil rights uh, in 1967, when the speech takes place, he had moved beyond uh, bus lunch counters and buses, and to some degree even beyond race, into that intractable corridor of poverty that it seems like we're still grappling with today. Would that be correct? Well, yeah, in a, in a sense,
3: uh, I, I would uh, only the, the, the only thing I would add to is that uh, King was always a critic of capitalism, going back to his teens. And uh, uh, in 1956, I think it is, he uh, preached a sermon, Paul's Letter to American Christians, in which he decried the one-tenth of one percent who owned 40 percent of the wealth. He, that 50 years before o- Occupy Wall Street. So he was always there. He just uh, had to take his time, you know, bringing out, he couldn't come out and say it. Um, and in this speech, he comes out and, and says it. So there, but there are some who say, well, King got sensitized to, to poverty and, and uh, wealth inequality after his Chicago um, <clears throat> crusade. But he was always there. And uh, it, it just come to another point. Actually, he really said that, okay, we've, we've worked on reform. Now it's time for revolution. And that's where he was. He was at a revolutionary uh, point.
0: At that point, well, on on that, on on, stand on that thread, so we're in in 1967. I mean, uh, Malcolm had been assassinated um, slightly more than two years um, earlier. Um, And so the the Malcolm voice uh, was being filled by then in 67 by the Black Power movement. So did they in any way sort of push King to this place where he became, as you said earlier in your previous statement, radicalized?
3: No, I think that they, they, get, they made some space for him to come out and say uh, some things that uh, he felt. You have to remember um, C.L.R. James, the, uh, the, the great Trinidad and Marxist intellectual, brilliant brain man. He was way on the left. King met with him in 1958 in, uh, in James Flat in London, and they talked all day, and C.L.R. James later said, King was as radical as any of us on the left. He just was unable to talk about it publicly. So he was all he was. He had been there for many years, but the Black Power movement uh, made some space for him to be able to say more things. Also, um, the fact that he was getting much less support from the church at that time uh, made him less concerned then with with staying on the on on their, on their rather conservative um, good side.
0: You, you you talked in um, in, in your um, 2016 piece in salon.com uh, macro ethics of Martin Luther King could, uh-huh. could you explain macro ethics and the place its application has with King's opposition in Vietnam well macroethics macro
3: e- ethics it really has to do with the uh, the constellation of ethics uh, that influence. Uh, his activism, but also helps to define his activism. Uh, Macro ethics, let's say, it's, it's the ethical prism through 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 which his uh, actions were refracted. And that's one of the things that's missing today uh, is a clear uh, ethical constellation, uh, a clear basis for movement um, in, in the. In activism today, um, because, for instance, we hear a lot about social justice, but that's uh, that's that's a slippery term, and that's uh, not at all specific enough. King, um, <clears throat> so King was very clear that one of the things he had to work for was justice, but a certain kind of justice, egalitarian justice. Um, that he had to work for righteousness, and he had to stand up for truth. All these things. Uh, came to him at that famous kitchen table experience where um, he was ready to quit the Montgomery um, bus boycott, and a voice spoke to him, and said, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth. And it was at that point that he uh, got the strength that moved him all the way up to the time of his death, but also, um, also let, gave him a pathway with, with parameters that he
0: had to uh, respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the public discourse in 1967, the the, uh, the speech that, that we're talking about today, the, the 50th anniversary of the opposition to the, the war in Vietnam, it was tantamount to, to, to blaspheme, was it not?
3: Oh, at that time, oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's hard to really... Um, imagine the effect that speech had, had today but I mean it turned everyone against King 163 newspapers across the country denounced him uh, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP announced him Whitney Young denounced him from the urban urban League on down the line black journalists black newspapers uh, his popularity dropped to uh, its lower lowest ever um, his book sales, I mean, his books have been selling before. He had a new book that came out, his last book, and uh, had very tepid sales. Why we can't wait, so, right? Why we can't wait? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was an enormous onslaught he brought on himself for a couple reasons. Um, he he was questioning our war against the Vietcom, uh, uh, a, a communist uh, a communist force, and you know, to call his own country. The greatest purveyor of violence in the world, though, though true, um, in a war against communists, cast him as uh, a friend of communists when we weren't that long out of the uh, the Red Scare and, and McCarthyism. So that's one thing that came uh, against him. The other thing is that um, he was deemed unpatriotic, uh, a hater of America. You know, <laughs> with the greatest purveyor of violence, and more, and even more than that. Um, it was like he had stepped out of his place. He was okay when he was just talking about, you know, uh, can we get along and, you know, and, and uh, integrating the society. But when he started challenging the very basis of capitalist society, um, it, it was just, I mean, it was blasphemy beyond, I think, anything that that happened in many, many years.
0: Uh, Is it also fair to say, uh, or at least to surmise, that in 67, um, the the larger culture had not yet turned against the war as they would would eventually? So there were still some people who saw this as a legitimate effort. Could you also say that there were, and and let's just call that the, the... the, 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 the white establishment feeling that way. And then, then there was a black establishment who was also vying for respectability who also saw the speech getting in the way of that effort with King. Would, would that be fair, sir? Well, yeah, I think that was
3: um, thinking of Roy Wilkins and uh, Whitney Young and uh, um, Adam Clayton Powell even spoke out uh, against them. But particularly Roy Wilkins and Whitney Young. I think that was really their concern. They they depended on the government a lot, and they felt that King was hurting uh, was hurting the, the efforts of uh, civil rights efforts. And then does then you, that, I'm sorry. Does that answer your question? Is that yeah,
0: absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely. I uh, you mentioned um, in your initial um, remarks that uh, about it's the speech that got um, uh, King killed. Uh, in fact, it, 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 was, it would be one, exactly one year to the day from the Vietnam speech that he was assassinated um, uh, in Memphis. So would it be fair to say that the Vietnam speech sort of began this 365-day odyssey culminating a year later in Memphis where King perhaps was his most prophetic, courageous at the same time as I mean, the darkest moment of his life?
3: Yes, yes, King had uh, he had moved into the realm of fighting for economic uh, democracy, and uh, and that the fact that he had a platform though was diminished at that point, but the fact that he had a platform um, from which to preach against the terrible economic violence that was being uh, wreaked around the country um, was was very very challenging to them. So you have to remember that. Well, this is not widely known, but. Um, Lyndon Johnson, of course, had his uh, official advisory military advisory group, but he also had a very, very important uh, shadow advisory group made of of, of the most uh, powerful corporate heads uh, in America. Uh, we're talking about AT and T. We're talking about Wall Street law firms, law firms representing General Motors and uh, the, the DuPont family and all that. Um, and uh, some of and uh, so to challenge economic uh, injustice would shine a light on some of their more rapacious um, and exploited practices. And then you had companies who were uh, U.S. companies that were making bundles, like Halliburton did, bundles off the war. A number of them were banking their highest profit margins ever, um, providing material for this uh, for this war. And so King was a real threat to uh, to their bottom line. So yes, absolutely. When he made that speech, it was like, oh man, he's stepped over the line. Now, he's uh, he's really standing, talking about. Um, he's really moving toward changing the architectural structure of America, like he said he said he wanted to do. He said, In "America, you must be born again." And he was trying to uh, clearly trying to lay the groundwork for a rebirth uh, of, of of American. Um, uh, justice, one would say, though that there never's been uh, a real American justice on a, on a large scale. But yeah, he had stepped over the line and he signed his death warrant. I, I do believe when he made that speech.
0: So, so, so that, that that sort of shadow uh, policy arm that you, that you just referred to uh, was it, would it be also fair to say that they were aided they were aided and abetted by those for their own interests sought to oppose the war in vietnam and and because it, it seems to me i mean obviously we have the benefit of uh 2020 hindsight now but when i listen to that speech and i listen to how king articulates the speech it's very clear that there, there's a lament for what this government is doing it's not like he's saying this with some sort of joy
3: right 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 yeah i mean it was uh he knew what he was getting into first, because everyone tried to talk him out of giving the speech. Um, but he felt he had a moral responsibility to do so. And yes, he was lamenting uh, all the the many tens of thousands, up to uh, millions, I guess that were uh, that were killed in Maine in the war. He was uh, uh, lamenting that this government uh, had its priorities so turned upside down that that killing people was. Uh, was more important than helping them back on the home front. Uh, yes, yeah, so that was um, that. That, <laughs> that was where he really had come to that point. I think I lost a thread of your question. So no,
0: no, no, you, no, no. You, we're, we're we're doing fine. See, you see, you see Doctor Hendricks. The way the show works, we, I just throw out questions. You give answers, and the people have to decide whether or not um, they like the answer or not. But that's how we do it. We're, we're real easy here. But. Um, uh, okay. Finally, why do you suppose um, the Vietnam speech is often excluded when we uh, take seriously um, the legacy of of Martin Luther King? Um, In in my view, we get overboard with the keynote address, the March on Washington, and rarely does this Vietnam speech uh, make the annals of his greatest hits. Why, Why do you think that is some 50 years later?
3: Yeah, um... Well, you know, uh, I have a dream speech, had some radical moments in it also, but the fact that, you know, we talked about America uh, defaulting on the check. Right. To Insufficient
0: uh, funds, yes.
3: And that this is uh, the urgency of now with all of that. Um, the fact that all of that is forgotten and elided just for these couple um, lines at the end shows that, America, I mean, this is the, the king that America wants to uh, remember, um, and there are different reasons. I mean, you know, uh, um, someone wanted to, to, to hold on to him like a, a, a Gandhi-like uh, figure. Um, others just, they, you know, they knew what a, what a threat, um, you know, his, his questioning economic injustice would be. Um, so there are all kinds of reasons uh, for, for um <clears throat> Uh, for looking at, for holding up that part of the speech. So when you come to the Vietnam speech and you realize that folk don't, don't even accept the fullness of the march on Washington speech is obviously because, one, either they don't want to remember him as being this radical, or two, because he presents uh, such a challenge uh, to to uh, the capitalist political economy um, that they just don't want that that to stand. And so... So the speech, the Vietnam speech, very few, relatively few people, you know, know, know of it, much less have, have read it or, or heard it. And America can maintain King as this uh, as this this user friendly saint uh, when what King really wanted to do, he said, he wanted to change radically change the architecture of this society. He said he wanted to fight against the, against capitalism and he was looking toward democratic socialism. And that presents a tremendous – that day it presented a, a – today it presents a tremendous um, threat. But imagine 50 years ago what kind of threat that, uh, that presented. So they started right away, when it was clear that he was a martyr, they started right away um, defining him and presenting him as sort of this toothless, user-friendly, um, can't-we-get-along figure
0: and, I, and I, I'm uh, a those last remarks uh, that is not uh the reality of Martin King would that be correct pardon me I said I'm assuming from your from your last answer that the the, the toothless uh I, I think Vincent Harding called a non abrasive hero um mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that in your view would be the antithesis of who Martin Luther King truly was well,
3: absolutely Martin Luther King really was was uh at, at, at his base, he was extremely he had an extremely radical view of uh, of the America that he wanted, um, and he was anti capitalist, right? He um, he wanted to change this thing so so much, and so, so to portray him as this you know just this nice guy, you wonder why why wouldn't even bother to kill him? He was such a non threatening guy. But the, the fact is that those in the know, they know what a threat he was. Um, and so, yes, the man was, and he, by the way, his vision is far ahead of most of the so-called leaders today because most of them, they aren't in dialogue with the uh, capitalist political economy. They don't really talk about um, uh, economic injustice. They, they offer no alternative and really offer not really much analysis today. Uh, almost none of these so-called leaders do. Um, King offered a much deeper uh, analysis um, of, of, of oppression and the social forces that cause it um, than anything I think we see uh, today. Maybe William Barber mm-hmm. uh, comes closest. But
0: other than that, no. Well, I, I was going to just say to you, because you had mentioned earlier, uh, you mentioned the Occupy movement, and obviously uh, we, we talked about King's Speech of Vietnam, and, and right now we're in the midst of uh, the longest war in American history in Afghanistan. And if Vietnam's a quagmire, I think we have to conclude Afghanistan's a quagmire. But but it seems to me, to your to your point, sir, what's missing is there's, op- there's been some opposition um, to Afghanistan but really, no opposition has really analysis has really connected those dots the way King did fifty mm-hmm. years ago.
3: Exactly, King. King talked about. I mean, he made it clear that every dollar uh, spent fighting in Vietnam was a dollar taken uh, away from the poor people in America and the social safety net from, that so many people uh, need. So he made that um, he made that relation. I, he, uh, I highlighted that relationship way back then, and yes, we're not seeing anything like that now. I mean, in fact, um, certainly among you know so-called black leaders, um, almost none of them are saying anything about uh, about the war in in Afghanistan, although it's it's, it's costing billions of dollars.
0: Well, we're it was six uh, trillion. <laughs> trillions
3: of dollars. Yeah, six <laughs> trillion so far. We're not hearing a word, and they're not seeing. Uh, they don't seem to realize, as King did, that this war is impoverishing uh, efforts to help the least of these, those folk who need it, and, and really build the kind of social uh, infrastructure that, uh, that, <clears throat> that helps people flourish you know, rather than just uh, survive from time to time. I mean, think about it, $6 trillion, uh, you know, that's, that, that can pay, can pay for a lot of, a lot of programs. You know, a lot of new schools, a lot of uh, uh, nutrition programs. Um, even uh, we wouldn't have as much a fight over a, a living wage if, if those dollars were, uh, even a portion of them were, were repatriated and uh, and circulated in the economy.
0: And uh, I guess the real tragedy to that also would be that it's $6 trillion, and we don't even know why we're spending the money.
3: Yeah, exactly. And and questions are not really being asked. Um, King was up on it. He knew how much it cost. He knew how many soldiers had died. He had a good sense of the percentage of them who were, were poor people, which, can, you know, uh, it tells me that I guess the case today, I mean, a lot of people go in the, in the Army, um, because that's the opportunity left open to them. King was on top of all of that. He saw all of that. So he not only saw the human cost, but he, uh, he understood it in uh, more analytical terms. He understood it in terms of dollars. He looked at the structural forces that kept pushing on this and that kept uh, obscuring the facts. And the Vietnam speech, was his taking off the, off the gloves and saying, "I'm going to save this whole thing now uh, for good. I'm I'm not holding back anymore," and that makes him an extraordinary hero. That also makes him a hero that many people don't realize how how heroic he was. In fact, you know they they uh, uh, hold him up and uh, as this great figure for things for. Uh, Not his greatest
0: moment. (laughs) (laughs) Right, there's some irony. There's some irony. (laughs)
3: Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Doctor Orby Hendricks, thank you, sir, uh, for for being on the public rally day. We really appreciate your voice. That was Doctor Orby Hendricks. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. remarks tonight will be an excerpt from Martin Luther King's opposition to the Ward Vietnam speech at Riverside Church on April the 4th, 1967, exactly one year before his assassination.
2: I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I'm in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord. When I read its opening lines, a time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war, nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. I would like to thank my guests, Dr. Dinah Ramey-Berry, And Dr. Aubrey Hendricks, The Public Morality, is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.